Welcome to Digging In with Missouri Farm Bureau. I'm your guest host, Eric Bowl, Director of Public Affairs. Today I'm joined by Senior Advisor to Missouri Farm Bureau, Emily Leroy. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Thanks for having me, Eric. This is, I think, your second time on the podcast. We introduced you just a little while ago, but you're still relatively new to the uh, organization in this role. So uh, tell us a little about how it's been going so far. Well, it's been a lot of fun. I've been able to meet quite a few members and have a long history with Farm Bureau. So in some ways, it feels like coming home. But what I've been spending most of my time doing is in the state capitol. Um, been filling in as our state legislative director for the time being since we are in session. And I came in on February 1st and went straight to work in the capitol with our members. And so Every day, spend my time talking to legislators and advocating on behalf of Farm Bureau members. Yeah, it's been uh, so about six weeks or so, I guess, that you've been uh, doing it and uh, quite a bit of action. I don't know that a lot's gotten really done, though, uh, but a lot of like excitement happening at the Capitol. We're going to go through that a little bit, but I wanted to ask you before that, the uh, past few weeks, we've had a lot of members coming into town and going to the Capitol. How have those visits with the Capital Connection Program been? I think they've been just remarkably successful, and that is based on feedback from legislators and also from our members. Um, we've had a lot of great one-on-one -on -one visits with legislators, so we break them up into small groups, sometimes as few as two people, and sometimes we might have six or seven people in a room. And it really enables us to go to them and give them our top Farm Bureau priorities. But each member, a lot of time, they bring their own issues from back home that matter to them. And so they can talk about what really impacts them. And sometimes whenever it's your own legislator, you know, they can sit there and and really get into the local issues. But other times, many times, we've been having connections with folks in maybe more urban areas and getting introduction to Farm Bureau for the first time. And those have been such positive bridge building meetings for both sides that it's, it's been really fantastic. So hope um, that folks will continue to join us for that program and Capital Connections are every Tuesday and you can work with your regional coordinator to learn more. Great. Yeah, it seems like from the people I've talked to who have been on the, the member side of it uh, coming into the Capitol to speak, it, a lot of the people, like you mentioned, the ones that um, the legislators they speak to that are not, I guess, what you might call the traditional Farm Bureau um, you know, core supporters are the, the meetings that they enjoy the most because they feel like they're actually extending, you know, not just preaching to the choir, but um, softening up some of the people to listen to our issues a little bit more um, and maybe even just not oppose the things that uh, we're, we're trying to get accomplished as, as stringently. So um, I think the, the, the program has been a real success over the past couple of years as we've been doing it. Um, and this year seems to be no exception. Do you, do you know which ones are coming up over the next few weeks by chance? I know that we kind of have these divided up by region um, or where people can find that out. Sure. So there are several dates coming up. Um, March 22nd, we're going to have the Southeast region coming in. March 29th, East Central. April 5th is Northeast. April 12th is the Northwest region. April 20th is West Central. And then we'll wrap up on April 26th with Southwest. Okay. Yeah. And then the legislative session ends in the second week of May, I guess. I believe it's May 13th. Okay. So we tried to get those wrapped up um, right before that last sprint and then uh, leave open the last couple of weeks for a special push on any specific issues that we think might need a little shove to get across the finish line, right? Absolutely. And that's when a lot of the, the legislating happens to get done. So we <laughs> worked all year and we have committee hearings, but really those last 
two weeks are, are the really intense time when the bulk of legislation is passed. Um, the other day I was looking up some some statistics and I think we had 69 bills passed last year, but it's important to remember that many of those are multi-subject bills. So mm-hmm. you'll have thousands of bills filed and then several hundred actually of those probably make it across the finish line, but in larger packages a lot of times, which mm-hmm. we call omnibus bills. Yeah, they just get stitched together and turned into larger things. Well, yeah, and you know, legislation seems to unfortunately happen most often under deadlines. Um, we have a couple of issues that uh, have pretty strict deadlines attached to them that the legislature has been dealing with this year. The budget is the first thing. That's something that there's a constitutional deadline that they need to get done. Um, and it's kind of a unique situation this year, given the federal COVID funds that have been um, allocated towards all the different states, Missouri being no exception. Um, and I know that there are a lot of debates as to how to best use those, plus the the, the rest of the standard budget, too. Uh, where are we with the, the budget situation right now? Sure. So the governor released his proposed recommended budget during the State of the State Address in mid-January. And so from there, that is the really the first time that the public and most people get to see the governor's budget. And so this year, the governor's recommended budget is $47.3 billion. And so that's more than one-third uh, uh, increase of over one-third over our current wow. spending. Yeah, that's so huge. That, yeah, that helps put in perspective a little bit. Some of the conversations that are happening in the Capitol and some of the planning that is go, has gone on in the executive branch, but then now is continuing over to the General Assembly and really vetting those and making sure that we're doing really wise investments with taxpayers. Um, you know, I've heard it said multiple times that we're talking about generational investments with these federal dollars, which is very true. Uh, we're looking at $2.6 million additional in American Rescue Plan Acts, which we term ARPA. Um, so those programs are going to be rolling out you know, starting July 1st and over the next couple of years through 2026. But then in addition to that, um, you know, we're going to have infrastructure money coming down the pike. We're going to be looking at opportunities there when it comes to broadband and transportation funding. And then also that budget includes um, it includes some increased general revenue. And part of that is because our state actually financially is doing really well. Mm-hmm. And so one of the beginning pieces of settling the budget is whenever the legislature and the governor's office, they get together and they do what's called the consensus revenue estimate. And so they, they project, how is the state going to do economically? What are our tax returns going to be? And so whenever they were making those projections, nobody knew what did COVID hold? How would our economy be affected? And so actually our state has held up really well and our income tax has been about level and our sales tax has grown like 4.4% oh, over wow. what was projected. Mm-hmm. And so we have these large general revenue budget surpluses, which some people would like to see used more. Um, the governor's office, the governor has recommended leaving quite a bit in the state coffers, but is also looking at what can we do? How mm-hmm. can we supplement some of these federal funds? So that's part of this dynamic. And then also the transportation budget is growing um, somewhat because of, as our listeners know, there was a gas tax increase passed last legislative session, which um, a lot of people have put in work to increase or to improve our infrastructure. And so that is being recognized in this budget cycle as well. Yeah. And what's the deadline for the budget? Because it's somewhat separate from the rest of legislation, general legislation, right? It is. It is. It is constitutionally required to be one week before the end of session. Um, so that Friday before the end of session, May 6th or 7th, I don't have a calendar in front of me, but that's when things really need to be wrapped up. And so back to your, your original question of where are we? So 
right now, um, things start in the House. So the governor introduces his budget, they go to the House, and then there are sub-appropriations committees. And those sub-appropriations committees have about six or seven members who really do a deep dive into certain um, executive branch budgets. And then they have the opportunity to make recommendations before they go in front of the entire budget committee. So we're right at that sweet spot where most, if not all, of the sub-appropriations committees have conducted their reviews, they've issued some recommendations, and then it's going to go to big budget. So big budget in the House, there's about 27 members, so a large committee. Mm-hmm. And they will do what's called, um, well, they'll have the chairman's the chairman's amendment, and then they'll do markup. And so that's really where they have the chance to offer amendments and um, to, to make changes to the budget from what the governor recommended in a, in a public forum. Um, an interesting piece for the House that the Senate doesn't have to contend with is the House has a balancing rule. So anywhere that they are going to be seeking an increase, they have to find a corresponding decrease. Sure. So really, the Senate has quite a bit more leverage when it comes to the budget process because those senators aren't beholden to that same process. Yeah. So um, that that's something that in the House is really interesting to watch as members try to fund things that are important to them and their communities, but also having to identify what are they going to be decreasing. Yeah. And so has it ever happened that the budget doesn't get done by its mandated deadline or what happens if that you know if that occurs i don't know <laughs> hopefully we don't have to that. cross that bridge hopefully we don't have to cross that bridge i i think we'll find a way to get it done before then um but i i cannot answer to what that happens and i i don't think our legislature is going to let that happen we hear it all the time sometimes um trivially is the legislature doesn't have to do anything besides pass a budget mm-hmm but that's always the caveat. They yeah. know they have to pass the budget, and they'll work together to do so. Well, and um, one of the other issues that's on their plate right now that they are also supposed to be <laughs> required to do this year is draw new maps for the redistricting process. Um, we've, I think, seen a lot of fireworks over this over the past few weeks and months. Um, where does that one stand? Good question. <laughs> um, so there has been a lot of tension in the Senate. So the House worked to pass a budget really quickly. It was back on January 19th, I believe. They sent a, uh, by a vote of 86 to 67, they approved a map and they sent it over to the Senate for consideration. The Senate picked it up pretty quickly and and it was pretty uh, easy to see there that sparks were flying. And so a lot of the conversation has been on what should the makeup of a map look like? Some believe that we should be pushing to have seven Republicans and one one Democrat as a makeup of the map. Um, others think that our current map, the way it is outlined with more of six Republican districts and two safe uh, Democrat districts is the better way to go. Farm Bureau actually engaged in that conversation and wanted to make sure that legislators knew that it was really important to protect rural representation. And so really, that makes more sense as a 6-2 map, what we would anticipate being a 6-2 map. Of course, it depends on how races line up, but when you start looking at a 7-1 map, you're breaking up those urban areas, and you're you're really having to extend into the rural areas of the state, and so you're losing some of that chance of that outstate representation, which really represents a lot of our members. So we felt it was important to engage on that and and know that there is value to a 6-2 map in our in our. Uh, perception, but there's also other things going on. You have folks talking about um, things that are really close to home, wanting to keep their home counties together, such as St. Charles County has been divided for a long time. A lot of people have an interest in that. Some others would like to see different bases, military bases put together for different reasons for um, 
to promote our our military um, bases in Washington D.C. So there's there's a lot at play, and Senate leadership has a very big job ahead of them. And we have not heard floor debate on the map for at least three, maybe four weeks yeah. at this point. So, you know, believe they're working at it and trying to do what they can. They have passed a few bills out of the Senate, um, which is a novel concept this year. <laughs> they did five, I believe, on the last Thursday before spring break. And I think there were seven bills passed so far out of the Senate, which is pretty slow yeah so but you know the wheels are starting to turn and and hopefully hopefully um people will continue to be able to work towards compromise and do the people's business because as much as we talk about wanting to not or we don't have to do anything besides the budget i don't think that's what most people think is actually in the best interest of the state so Mm -hmm. we'd like to see some some them productively address some things yet this session yeah and that uh, argument and that argument over redistricting seems to have raised some personal uh, disagreements uh, between members of the Senate and spilled over into other areas, actually, beyond just the the map drawing. And, um, you know, we've seen a lot of filibustering on nothing, <laughs> you know, filibustering approval of the journal and um, minor motions. So, uh, unfortunately, some of those personal disagreements seem to have uh, also affected some of the legislating that we're hoping to see done. And um, that's the thing that we're hoping really gets uh, solved and and ironed out so that in the second half of session after this week's spring break, uh, when they come back in into town, they can really dig into some of the specific issues that need to be addressed for the good of the state, as you said. Of the the foremost of those, we have uh, four things that I think we're as Farm Bureau going to try to put our uh, strongest attention on over the next few weeks. First one of those is something we've dealt with for a lot of a lot of years, unfortunately, and uh, maybe the the most core issue that we work on as a farm organization is a property rights issue, and that's the debate about eminent domain and reforming that. Um, that's come up m- most recently because of. The uh, power lines that people have been trying to build across the northern part of our state and uh, the pushback that we've had over that over the past few years. Where do we stand with that one right now? Sure. So we have several bills that we are um, trying to escort across the finish line. So two of those have been filed by Representative Mike Hafner. Um, He is from Pleasant Hill, Missouri. And so those are House Bill 1876 in House Bill 2005. And so those both deal with eminent domain reform specifically relating to these merchant transmission lines and, and electrical corporations. Because as you said, we we know that this issue with these high voltage transmission lines was exposed whenever we were discussing Grain Belt Express. However, with the future of power transmission and all the talk from consumers all the way to federal mandates about grid resiliency and green energy, these projects are going to continue to come. Yeah, it's definitely not the last one we're going to see. No. This is somewhat showed a roadmap and a hole in our statutes, and that's what that's what we want to be able to have a true public policy discussion of what is in the best interest of not only electric consumers and Missourians, but our landowners and protecting property rights and letting folks know that this issue will continue to be important to Missouri Farm Bureau members and should be important to all landowners, mm-hmm. rural and urban alike. 
Because you want to know that whenever you have put your blood, sweat, and tears, maybe for generations, into investing in property and to have the idea that a private entity could take that away through the power of eminent domain is is somewhat unfathomable to us. But we've yeah. seen that happen. And so we want to be sure that we are protecting interests going forward where unless a project is actually serving a true public need, what it was intended to do, we know that. We know that was the intent. But to protect a true public need, they should not have the ability to use eminent domain and hold that over folks' head during negotiations. Right. Have a good faith negotiation and don't let this be precedent setting. And so that's what we want to address going forward. And so some of the things that we're looking at doing specifically would be something like we said of specifying through the legislature what constitutes a public need. Mm -hmm. And so we believe that a common sense approach to this would be that 50% of the power should be, if the if the transmission line is going to be carrying an electrical load, 50% of that should be going to service Missourians. So right now, Grain Belt heard it said that 6% of that power is only being dropped off in Missouri. Most of it is just being transported across our state. And so, again, if our state is going to grant this power, which is typically reserved for governmental entities, that it is going to be servicing Missourians. And so that's 50% or more. That's one thing that we would like to see done. Um, some piece, Another piece that we would like to see done is an increase in landowner compensation. So we have it pegged in there at 150% of fair market value is what you should receive for agricultural and horticultural land. There is some precedent in statute for that with heritage farms. Um, so that is not a new concept, but we think it should go beyond heritage to all agricultural land. Um, when you're taking land out of production, in the near term and potentially the long term, folks should be compensated for that. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, the thing is, is we know it's not all about the money. The money is really, when you're not soliciting the income, it doesn't matter how much you're getting paid. I've right. heard it say that, you know, how much, how much is enough whenever I don't want to sell? Mm -hmm. And there probably is no limit. So the 150% is not it's better, but it's probably not enough. Yeah. What we need to do is we need to offer protections to where landowners aren't exploited in the future. Yeah. Um, and I think I've heard the just generally property rights described in the past as the right to say no. And that's what you're talking about is I don't care if you offer me a million dollars an acre. If I don't want to sell it, I should have the right to say no. And um, that's where the public need uh, part of it comes in that we need to make sure that that is very narrowly but clearly defined. And I think that putting those together is is really valuable. Absolutely. that And that's what it all comes down to is the ability to make decisions for your land and not having especially some private entity come in and, and take away your property. Right. And for their own private gain. Right. Uh, when it's just owned by investors, they're not really serving anyone. So absolutely. So we we know how important that is and we have we have champions in the legislature who have carried the torch before and they're carrying it again. And um, the House has already passed both of these bills out of the Judiciary Committee. We hope that they will receive floor debate soon. Um, we are hopeful that they will pass out of the legislature with a good bipartisan or out of the House with a good bipartisan majority and then go over to the House. And in the House, Senator Bean has filed legislation as well as a companion bill. I believe that's Senate Bill 
1211, and that is a companion bill, so the identical bill to Representative Mike Hafner's House Bill 2005. So those are our bill sponsors and handlers, and they are well-equipped to continue to carry the torch, and we hope put this issue to rest yeah. and offer some long-term protections to landowners this year. Absolutely. Well, those are some good um, good supporters of agriculture who really know what they're talking about on a, a first-hand level. So there's, I'm glad to see that the bills are being handled by people who are um, no, <laughs> no strangers to these issues. Um, another issue that is something we've talked about for many years now is broadband and the need to make sure that we are using the federal funds that are coming in uh, through, that you mentioned earlier through the American Rescue Plan and other uh, dollars to actually make those once-in-a-generation investments and not squander our opportunity um, to do this right the first time. So uh, where do you see that one going? So we have been talking about this issue for years. Farm Bureau has been at the forefront of this conversation for a long time. And I think, genuinely, everybody is singing off the same sheet of music. They understand the importance of broadband. If anything, um, if there was any silver lining to COVID, it was highlighting that this is not just about entertainment services. Mm -hmm. This is about education. This is about telework. This is about telemedicine. And it is a real way to revitalize our rural communities. And even urban communities are, are underserved right now. And so everybody's at the table. The question is, how do we do this correctly and make really wise investments? And so right now, we know that the governor has recommended $400 million of this federal money, this American Rescue Plan Act money in the budget. And thus far, the House Sub-Appropriations Committee on Federal Spending has left that pretty much intact. So things will be telling um, in the next week or so, whenever it goes through House big budget, we'll see what happens. But for the most part, people really get it. They Mm -hmm. understand how important this is. They understand that we don't need to overbuild our infrastructure, that we need to be looking at accessibility first. You can't have a conversation about speeds if you don't even have access. But after that, we also need to be talking about speeds and we need to be building for the future. We're talking about 100 megabits per second up and down, preferably, or at the very least, 100 up and 20 down. If there is a reason that can be demonstrated. But we know that being able to upload to the cloud and use a lot of those tools for precision agriculture and even just things within the home, it's absolutely essential. And it's not... um, Like I said before, it's not a matter of entertainment anymore or social media or things like that. So we're really hopeful that this is what it's going to take to make real advancements in our state. Of the governor's recommended budget, $250 million of that is pegged for an infrastructure grant. And so that's our hard infrastructure, that middle mile and last mile infrastructure, um, getting out into our rural communities and, again, knowing that there are some urban and suburban needs, especially as well. There's $30 million that has been dedicated towards a cell towers grant. So this one is really looking at how do we increase our cellular capacity because there's still areas of the state that don't have cell service. And so what can the state do as far as providing resources of public land? So if the public land is provided, what can we do to work with carriers of of all varieties, so not carrier specific, to place towers on land to reach some of those underserved areas. Um, And then there's some other programs that are a part of that package. And so we're talking about digital literacy and affordability. And so that's a conversation of helping folks um, who may not be able to afford internet right now, or maybe just need a little bit of help of, of figuring out how to use this service. 
And as those individuals are trained and better brought online, those are more people participating in the digital economy and it makes it a more affordable long term for everyone. Right. So helping get those people across that initial hurdle um, is a recommendation from the governor. And then also there's $10 million for what is termed broadband capacity building. And that's really enabling the Office of Broadband Development within the Department of Economic Development to staff up to appropriately administer these programs. Because yeah. this, these are big asks um, from, from everyone, including state government. And I heard, I think, the Department of Economic Development, that their budget, if things are funded and at the rate the governor has asked for, a 350% budget increase wow. of pass-through dollars. Yeah. So they want to do this well, mm -hmm. and that requires some manpower. And so they're asking for some temporary positions, and um, that's that's also part of this. And, and it's very necessary to get these dollars out the door timely and well. Yeah. Well, it certainly seems like there uh, are not a lot of people left that need convincing. I think that people know that the need is there, and they agree on that part. It's just a matter of getting it done. So. I think we're in a good position. Uh, one other issue that we've talked about for many years and uh, I think continues to be a discussion is a initiative petition reform. Um, that's something that maybe is a long-term discussion. Um, you could even end up going beyond this year, but hopefully we'll be able to see some progress on that this year and shore up our constitution so that it can't be just uh, amended by people coming in without a state money and basically buying amendments onto our constitution. Um, have you seen any progress with that this year? There has been some progress. And so um, that's been a, an issue that Farm Bureau members have a lot of adopted policy on. And I would say there are quite a few members of the legislature who agree. The House has made it a priority and they passed out two different bills. Um, I believe those are HJR 79 and HJR 91. And those were filed by Representative Mike Henderson and Representative Jay Eggleston. So those passed out of the House fairly early in session. Um, one of those bills has already been referred to a Senate committee. Meanwhile, on the Senate side, they have Senator Crawford and Senator Onder both also had initiative petition reform bills that have been considered by committee and voted out. So there's movement on both sides. So it's a conversation of, is this going to be a priority of the legislature to, to accomplish what is quite frankly a heavy lift? But we're going to continue to engage. Our members believe that rural representation on these initiative petitions is very important. We, one of the things that we would like to see is that all of the districts, all of the congressional districts be represented. So you cannot go to one or two districts across the state to meet some threshold for signature gathering. We think there should be a threshold of signatures gathered for each congressional district. And also there needs to be a little bit of more muster of changing our constitution. There should be some rigor to that. It is a framework. Um, statute is what the that is where we should be able to make tweaks and changes from year to year it should not be that easy to amend the constitution we would like to see that be a two-thirds threshold mm -hmm. and so those are two key elements that in whatever ip reform bill would pass those are the things that we would like to see done um, whether or not this is the year remains to be seen but there is there is momentum yeah well it, it's uh, definitely something that would be challenging to because it would have to go to a vote of the people to become effective. And um, that's always a, a questionable you know, challenge because you never know how the people may uh, see a proposal and, and what the end result may be at the ballot box. Um, but we'll keep an eye on that one, keep on pushing to 
get sensible reforms made so that our constitution is more preserved. Um, the last issue that we're really putting a lot of attention to in this final stretch after the spring break-ins um, this week is the agricultural targeted tax credits that are administered through the uh, Missouri Department of Agriculture. Um, those are something that expired at the end of the year that last year that we were really expecting to see extended during the last legislative session, but it ended up not making it across the finish line. Do you think it will get across the finish line this year? We we sure hope so. Again, we have champions in the legislature. That goes back to um, there was unfinished business left on the table last year, and those tax credits were a part of that. So eminent domain was one, and the tax credits were another. And there really is not a lot of controversy surrounding those programs. They have all been put together into one large agriculture omnibus bill that several House members, well, quite a few people, but a few House members, especially um, Agriculture Chairman Don Roan, should receive a lot of credit for putting together and doing the work in the interim to put these non-controversial items together that were right at the edge of the finish line last year and putting them together out the gate. And so that's House Bill 1720. Representative Brad Pollitt from Sedalia is the bill sponsor for that. And so the legislature, the House, picked up that package and they moved it very quickly. They did redistricting as bill number one out of the House and the agriculture omnibus bill as bill number two. And that had, again, great bipartisan support and has gone over to the Senate. The Senate Agriculture Committee has had a hearing and these are almost all subjects that have been really vetted last year. Um, the one the, t- the tax credit programs that we would really like to see done are some of those value-added tax credits that are administered by the Department of Agriculture, like you mentioned. They have a great return on investment. They help our rural communities. Um, we've seen these projects come to fruition across the state from ethanol and biodiesel plants. There's opportunity in the future with meat processing and peanut processing and many, a myriad of different things. We believe this is a very easy ask of the legislature, and we look forward to the Senate wrapping things up so we can get this to the governor's desk this year. Yeah, and these are, like you said, programs that have been around uh, quite a while and have a proven track record. They're not um, speculative at all. They really have shown themselves to be well worth the money and then some um, for our rural economies to get them uh, the opportunity to develop the the. Um, infrastructure that's needed to bring jobs to rural areas. So certainly hope that we see action on that. Well, Emily, we appreciate all the work you're doing over at the Capitol. I know that it's a lot. Um, Again, the Capitol Connection visits, certainly hope to see you there um, from your home area on the dates that Emily mentioned earlier. Those are coming up on, they're on Tuesdays, is that right? Tuesday mornings. We get started with a short overview and briefing at around 8.30 in the morning. And then our, our visits start at 9 o'clock, have some 20-minute visits. So we, we get quite a few visits in, and then we wrap up with a delicious lunch at noon where we have an opportunity to visit with some of our Farm Bureau staff along with the members who are up that day. Yeah, it's worth it. If nothing else, you get a great lunch out of it. So uh, we hope that you'll be able to make it to that um, when your region is up. Just talk to your regional coordinator about trying to get uh, on those trips when you're scheduled for your portion of the state. Uh, We look forward to having our members come to the Capitol and help get, get these last few things across the finish line as we work towards the end of session here in May.
Well, thank you for having me on here today, Eric. It's a pleasure to be able to be in the Capitol representing Missouri Farm Bureau members' interests. I look forward to meeting more members over time, and I hope that I get to see you at Capitol Connections yet this session, where we can continue to build on the good work that has already been laid, but also talk about anything back in your communities that you would like your legislators to address. All right. Thanks again, Emily. We appreciate it. 